I love this story. And uh, if this is new to you, or uh, if you've uh, heard it many times, I, I just hope you'll uh, take a few minutes and think with me about this wonderful story in Scripture before I kind of fit it in to my own, uh, to my own journey. In fact, uh, Sarah only read part of the account, and uh, if you want to take a minute and find in those Bibles that are uh, nearby you, uh, it's page 895, and uh, or you may have your own Bible, but I would encourage you to uh, have a Bible open, and I won't mind if you kind of read the parts that, that uh, Sarah didn't get to uh, while I'm talking through this story. So that's 895. I... I love to have people just sitting with an open Bible as we study together. Okay, um, let's, just, let's just make sure we have in mind what's here in this story. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 9 makes the comment simply that they walked by a man who was born blind. And uh, as you read on in the story, you find out he was a a beggar. He was sitting by the roadside begging. And uh, as far as I can tell, he had no expectations. Uh, You know, there are all sorts of different accounts of the way Jesus worked. In this case, this man didn't say a thing. He didn't ask to be healed. Uh, Jesus basically said that God is going to do a mighty thing in this man's life. Um... But I don't know that he was looking for it. I don't know that he had any expectations for life. Uh, He just wanted a few coins. But in fact, and this again is unique, but Jesus spit in the ground, kind of stirred it together, dabbed some on his finger and wiped it across this man's eyes, right? Mud wiped on his eyes and he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which was not far away. And the scripture says, as you can read, he went and washed, verse 7, and came back seeing. Now, actually, I was re-studying this for uh, our time together this morning, and it occurred to me that this man probably never saw Jesus. Doesn't that make sense? He was blind when the mud was wiped over his eyes. He went away, washed it off, he came back, and he was seeing. But at this point, Jesus is gone. And now begins what is almost a hilarious set of exchanges when you begin to read through this. First, the neighbors get involved. You see that in verse 8? The neighbors who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this the same man? And you can understand what that's like. I mean, the whole countenance would be different, wouldn't it? I mean, this man's eyes are open. He has to be sort of looking around things he's never seen before in his entire life. And a big smile would be on his face. So he would look like a different person. And so they have to argue back and forth, is this the same guy? And finally the man says, yeah, yeah, it's me. Well, then they got to check this out with the Pharisees. And if you're not familiar with the church language, a Pharisee was like the religious police of the day of Jesus. And uh, everything had to go by them. Everyone was intimidated by the Pharisees except for Jesus 
Uh, and uh, they needed to check it out. Well, it turns out, whoever had healed this guy, if it was a real healing, had done work on the Sabbath. That's why this whole discussion of why he's a sinner comes up. That was the sin. Work was done on the Sabbath day. That is, he made mud. And that took precedence over all else. And so suddenly they're in this big debate, and they again try to go back to this guy and uh, say, all right, tell us, what happened to you? Verse 15, the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Well, can't happen, can't happen. So they call in the guy's parents, and they said, you know, this is a... This is kind of a hoax, isn't it? And they said, no, no, he's our son. We can't explain it, but he used to be blind, and now he sees. But they were scared to death of these Pharisees. So they said, you go ahead and talk to him. And that's where the scripture picked up that Sarah just read to you in verse 24. The second time they called him in and said, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Verse 25, which is really... Kind of the great hook of this passage. It's really, gentlemen, I don't know what happened to me, but I can tell you this. What? Once I was blind, but now I see. Something radical has happened to me. That's all I can tell you. Well, they won't give it up. And the argument continues. Come on, this guy's a sinner. It couldn't have happened. And and this poor man who's been a beggar actually begins to argue with the Pharisees. Oh, amazing. You guys want to be his disciples? And, you know, you can go back. In fact, you ought to reread this whole story when you you have a chance. And in the end, they throw the guy out. (laughs) And now here's the mental picture I have. This is the single most exciting day in this man's entire life. Right? And yet he's sitting maybe on a bench. Maybe he's even gone back to the place where he used to set to beg. And he's saying, what in the world is going on? And and I kind of see him with his head down, just looking on the ground wondering what in the world this is all about. When he sees a pair of sandals and he looks up and he sees a man he's never seen before and the man says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And you know, I puzzled about that saying, what what that means, but that's not the point, I believe. The point is, he heard the voice. He heard the voice. He says, I know who that is. I've not known who Jesus was, but it's Jesus. And he falls on his face and worships. And somehow, I believe, while he still doesn't understand it, it's okay. Because he's with Jesus. And let me hang just sort of three thoughts on this beautiful, beautiful story as I try to introduce myself to you a little bit. 
First of all, the central truth is there was a miracle, right? This man who was born blind was healed. And people wanted to explain it away. They wanted to nuance it. They wanted to theologically analyze it. But the fact remains there was a miracle. God did something extraordinary. But secondly, you know, the fact that God did a mighty work didn't mean that this man understood it. And and when God comes and moves into our lives and transforms us by his power, that's an extraordinary truth. But I, And Mark, I think you reflected on that. It takes you a while to begin to figure out what, what actually happened and, and what are the implications. But the fact of the matter is, the way in which you begin to understand and resolve is when Jesus comes back and meets you again and again and again. Well, I actually, just in my own story, this picture of a man born blind really does fit. Um, I listened to Dwayne's wonderful message last week, and Dwayne uh, identified the fact that he grew up in the church. So he at least heard things about God growing up. It took him a while to kind of come to embrace it, but at least it was there. I had nothing. In fact, I thought between the two of us, we probably hit everybody in here. Some of you grew up, you know, maybe in the church in wonderful homes and wonderful families. You heard about Jesus all your life. But others of you, like me, had nothing. And I don't mean I was an atheist. I don't mean my parents were terrible people. They're just a nice, good American secular family. God simply wasn't part of the conversation. I don't remember ever hearing a grace said before a meal. I don't ever remember uh, anything about God talked about in our family. The holy moment growing up as a kid was Christmas Eve when my mother would gather us around and we'd read the night before Christmas. I suppose I knew Jesus, uh, Christmas was there because Jesus was born, but that, that was the extent of it. This, by the way, for to orient us geographically, was in New York City. I was actually born in northern New Jersey. I know we're from all over the place. And my folks moved into New York City during the war. That's World War II. (laughs) Not the Revolutionary War. I'm not that old. I'd never met anyone who went to church that I know of. I never met someone who seriously believed in Jesus. It just wasn't part of my world at all. Born blind is a great way to picture that. That changed somewhat when we moved down to the Washington, D.C. area of Silver Spring, which is one of the Maryland suburbs. My father got a job down there. And in the 50s, living in the suburbs, and we'd moved out of the city, and now we're in the suburbs, but part of suburban living was you joined a church. And so my mother found a church, joined it, and realized that my brother and I had never been baptized, so she took me to church. They put some water on my head, gave a piece of paper that says, you are now a child of God. I think I went twice. I hated it. And that was the end of my spiritual journey. Not very profound. 
I was really like that man born blind who had, I think had no expectations. You know, God, God decided he was going to do a mighty work in his life, but it wasn't because this guy went looking for it. And I certainly didn't. My life changed, really, beginning, I didn't know it at the time, with a phone call from a, a pastor when I was a junior in high school inviting me to play basketball for his church team. Now that's something I was interested in. I was a wannabe basketball player. Actually, I'd been cut from the high school team, so that made me eligible to play church ball. And so he said, would you like to play basketball for our team? And I remember the first thing I said was, do I have to go to church? And uh, he said, well, once in a while, wouldn't hurt. And I was willing to make that sacrifice (laughs) to get to play ball. And... uh, So I got to play ball with these. It was guys my age and then some older, uh, younger men who got out. And they played hard. I mean, I'd never met religious. They prayed before the game. I'd never heard of such a thing. And they didn't cuss. How can you play basketball without a lot of cussing? But I really loved being with them. In fact, this is the kind of the small world department, but next Sunday I'm, we're going to be away uh, watching our grandchildren down in Maryland, and I'm preaching at the, at the church where my son-in-law is a pastor, and sitting in the back row, I can see him now, is an old man, and uh, people get annoyed with him sometimes because his hearing aid starts to squeak, you know, that high-pitched, that high-pitched thing. His name is Don Comer, and Don's going to be sitting back there as I preach with a great big smile on his face. Because he was one of the men <coughs> who was playing basketball with us 60 years ago. Well, I went to church. Couldn't hurt me. And, um, well, the thing I remember is I was totally lost. I didn't have a clue what they were talking about. It could have been a foreign language. They were nice people. I liked the music. But other than that, I, I got nothing out of it. And as we kind of are together for these next several months, um, I hope you'll f- hear from me the fact that if, if, if you're here as a beginner, um, I'm, I'm all for you. I'm, I'm glad you're here because that's where I was. I mean, if, if I'd walked into that church and they said, please open your Bible to John, well, first of all, I didn't have a Bible. Secondly, I would not have had a clue what they meant by John. So that's where I was starting, and I, I, you know, I always think somebody, and I, I suspect even here this morning, some of you are here and you're saying, yeah, that's me too. Well, let me just say, you've got to begin somewhere. And so I hope you'll, you'll really start out and walk with me, and I would love to sit down and answer your, question, answer your questions to the extent that I can. You can only take in so much, and that was me. You know, something was drawing me, and I kept coming, strangely enough, because these were... Nice people, but I again, I'd never been around Christian people or believing people at all. But I kept coming, and I heard a little more and a little more. And I tried to read the Bible a little bit at home. We, we had one of these, you know, big things on the bookcase that everybody has, and I kind of cracked it open, but I didn't know where to start. I will never forget, though, kind of one of those aha moments when they had a guest come who was a missionary, and I was blown away. A missionary! Whoa! I mean, it could have been a president, and I wouldn't have been more impressed. I'd never met a missionary. 
But this man stood up and said, and I don't think I'd heard a word up until that point, but he said, in everyone's heart, there's a God-sized vacuum. And the only one who can fill that vacuum is Jesus Christ. And I think the experience for me was that for the first time in my life, I actually, I looked, so to speak. I mean, I'd never thought about it. The statement, by the way, is, of course, the French philosopher Pascal about the God-sized vacuum. But I had never actually thought about it. And, and when, I, when I thought about it, I realized he's right. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. Again, going back to the, to the man born blind, so think about it. Suppose the man had grown up and no one ever told him what it was to see. And then at somewhere along the line, someone said, explained to him what it was to see. And he had this awful feeling of having missed something that he never even knew existed. And that was me. You can know God. You can have a relationship with God. I said, oh, really? I had no idea. And that was sort of the next stage, so to speak, when things got pretty more and more intense. Because they used a word that I had never heard before in any religious setting. It was the word saved. I know we're probably from all sorts of different traditions. In this particular church, it was a fundamentalist congregation. And the way you got saved was at the end of the service, the preacher would stand up, they'd sing a song, and he said, if you want to be saved, walk up the aisle of this church. So that's how you get saved. I don't know what they did at the front of the church, but somehow you get saved if you go to the front of the church. And for the first time, number one, I knew I wasn't saved, whatever that meant. I didn't have it, whatever they were talking about. And number two, I really wanted it. See, that was, that was the change. A dawning awareness that whatever they were talking about, it had something to do with God, and I didn't have it, but I needed it. But not that badly that I would humiliate myself in front of all those people and walk up to the front of the church. Of course, little did I know that that's exactly what they were praying that would, that would happen. But I kept coming. Why in the world did I keep coming? And learned a little bit more. Easter came. Basketball season ended, so we started the softball team. Easter came, and for the first time I asked the question, I, I mean, I know historically Jesus died, but why did Jesus die? I never thought about it. You see, one thing after another, and that pressure to be saved, I really felt it more intensely. And all I had to do was just stay home from church, and I wouldn't, because the only way to get saved is to walk up in front of the church. At least that's the message I heard. It's not the, it's not the case, by the way, but that's the way it came to me as a guy who knew nothing. So why did I keep coming to church? But I did. And in fact, in June of 1956, I, I finally did took the step, I walked the aisle, I prayed what they call the sinner's prayer, which essentially is, Jesus, I'm a sinner, I need to be forgiven, please forgive me, I ask you to come into my life. I don't know if that's exactly the words that I use, but I'm one of those people who can tell you exactly the time when I was converted. Uh, For the longest time I thought that's the only way to get saved, but the fact of the matter is, there are many, many paths, but the end result is the same. And that is a surrender of your life to Christ. That really was, for me, um, a very real conversion moment. And I will never forget it. Of course, I had 
I've had ups and downs and stops and starts along the way, but but uh, that really was um, a, a point in my life where I was put on a new path, and for all of my struggles and, and uh, difficulties, never looked back, never have uh, gone to, uh, you know gone in a different uh, in a different direction. And, and what I've just described to you is the work of God in salvation. And I want to go back to the story again because, it, because friends, it is a miracle. I mean, absolutely a miracle. You can't make it happen. You can't gin up some kind of religious experience. God does it. How and when is part of the mystery, and it is a mystery. So if if you're kind of at that very beginning stage this, this morning, kind of wherever you are in that journey, you can't change yourself, and you're going to come to that point of realizing that. I tried, actually, for the first time in my life, I tried to, to morally reform myself, and I wasn't doing anything all that terrible anyway. But, uh, but I realized I couldn't do it. And that was part of the way God began to work in my heart to say, this is, this is a deeper kind of change than you can handle. But you can say, God, I can't change. Will you change me? And my friends, God loves to hear that prayer. You know, if you, if you go back and read the story again, you'll find where this man who's been born blind says in his argument with the Pharisees, we know God doesn't hear sinners. Well, the fact is, he does hear sinners. You know, that's the danger, by the way, of just quoting a single Bible verse. I mean, that's an accurate recording of what the man said. He said God doesn't hear sinners, but he was wrong. God does hear sinners. And he will hear you when you say, God, will you change my heart? Because I can't change it. But, you know, taking the fact that he missed it, even though the miracle had happened, he could see but he didn't understand it really, did he? He hadn't sorted it all out. And that's kind of the second uh, step that I want to make sure that you get a hold of. Because when God does that miracle of salvation, and whether it was kind of early in your life and you kind of took a long time to sort it out, or whether, as Mark just described, 25 years and then suddenly there's a, a really a breaking into your life of God, don't think you got it all figured out. What you can say is, I don't know what happened to me, but I do know this. But once I was blind, but now I can see. I, and it had something to do with Jesus. And Jesus has changed me, but you guys got to help me figure this out. And in fact, that's really what needs to be happening in our churches, in our home groups, and you know, in the ministry of the Word. We can't change people, no matter who's standing up here in front of you or what happens the church, but we can begin to explain to people what went on, to begin to sort out what God has done in your life. And that needs to happen. And it will take a while. And it will take a while to sort of begin to appreciate all the greatness of God that he's, that he's, as he's broken into your life. And there, therefore, the implications that fall out of it. How do you deal with forgiveness? How do you deal with some of these other kinds of issues? But folks, that takes time. We need to grow up. 
But, but, the, but the critical thing is, has God begun in you that new life and that new work? Well, let me put another piece of my own uh, journey in here, and then um, I'm not going to drag this out because this, obviously, if you go all the way back to World War II, that's a, <laughs> I got a lot more of my story to tell. <laughs> but in fact, uh, um, as, as I mentioned, in God's mercy, I was, I was brought to faith in what was a very rigid fundamentalist church, I now, I now understand. And they immediately, and lovingly to be sure, but immediately made it known that there are certain rules that I now needed to keep. Certain things that I had to do and certain things that I couldn't do anymore. A lot of the stuff didn't make sense to me. Card playing, you know, that was out. I'd grown up playing cards. I loved to play cards. I didn't gamble. I just, you know, enjoyed playing with my family, my mother, and so forth. Anyway, the fact of the matter is I was so thrilled at that point to know the forgiveness of God to know that God, had, whatever he'd done in me, I was a different person. And if all this stuff is part of the package, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll buy into it. It doesn't matter that much to me. Because the important thing was, I really had this new life in Christ, and I had a new community, a new set of friends. Um, from there, I, in fact, went off to a fundamentalist college. Some of you have heard of it. It's called Bob Jones University which is kind of the strictest of the fundamentalist schools. And, I mean, they tell you when to get up, when to go to bed, when to eat, what, what you can eat, what you can't eat. I loved it. <laughs> First time in my life I'd had any discipline, to be frank. My parents, who were great people, just said, you basically do your thing. Well, I did, which means you're lazy and you really don't accomplish much. I sort of made it through high school. So now I was being disciplined in every part of my life, including my Christian life. And frankly, it was wonderful. It's also where I met my wife. Where is Sandy? There she is. Um, we met there. We got married the day she graduated, which was 1961. Now do the math. This is 2011. How much is that? 50 years. And unless you get a new pastor in the next couple of weeks, we're going to get to celebrate our golden anniversary with you guys. And we're thrilled to death. I also was called to the ministry there. Now... In, in that school, you weren't called a ministerial student. You were called a preacher boy. And we had a, we had a, a rally song. Souls for Jesus is our battle cry. Souls for Jesus will fight until we die. We never will give in while souls are lost in sin. Souls for Jesus is our battle cry. And they get all eight or nine hundred of us standing up to sing that song. Sandy said it was actually scary to hear these guys <laughs> with that determination. And that was me. I was going to go out and win the world for Jesus. And then you grow up a little more and I say, wait a minute. And you study the Bible a little more. And I realized... However eloquent I could be, however good I was at talking people into praying the prayer, I couldn't change anybody. God had to change people. 
And then that caused me to think back on my own journey and I began to realize, hey, do you think it was an accident that that pastor called me on the phone? And why, why did I keep coming to church even though I wanted to run away? Why did I keep feeling called? And that's the biblical word, called to follow Jesus. I fought it. It just wasn't in me. But in the end, I had to answer the call. In my case, it was walking the aisle of that church. But again, that looks different for so many different people. Where did that come from? And I began to appreciate the fact, and I hope all of you do, that God had been at work in my life long before he was looking for me. I wasn't looking for him. And when you understand that, it lays a foundation for all the life that's to come. The same God who sought you is the God who will be with you no matter what comes. We're going to sing in a few minutes as part of the communion a wonderful testimony of Charles Wesley. Charles and John Wesley were the founders of Methodism back in the 1700s. And it's a wonderful hymn called, And Can It Be?, And it sings about the coming of Christ and his incarnation and his death and his resurrection. And we celebrate the cross. But then there's one stanza as well I want you to pay attention to. It's actually right there in the bulletin. If you want to take a minute to just have it in front of you and then we'll come back to it in just a few minutes. It's down there at the bottom of page five. You see the third stanza? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Now that's poetic language, but the point is, God, you sent light into my soul. Thine eye diffused a quickening, a a life-giving ray, a beam of God's light and power into my miserable condition. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's the great story. You see, God's love is so extraordinary. And this is something that I've just kind of figured out, honestly, not that long long ago to put it together. So it, it takes time. Yeah, I knew I was changed. But what I've come to appreciate is, we, you know, we say God saves us. But in fact, when we say God saves us, it really, we're saved by God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And the Father in his love sent his Son into the world, which is wonderful. But he also loves us so much that he sent his Spirit to move into our dead souls and dead hearts to awaken us. And in fact, friends, I didn't realize it at the time, but the first person of the, of the Holy Trinity that you and I encounter is the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't know it. You see, but the Spirit stirs us and awakens us and points us to Jesus. And in time, when the Spirit's at work, we will come. We will come and surrender to Jesus himself. And because you come to believe in Jesus, you now begin to call God, not just the the man upstairs, somebody up there, you say to him, Father. How in the world could sinners like us speak to God Almighty and say to him, Father? 
You say to him, Father, because Jesus calls him Father, and we've been joined to Christ. And that's kind of the last thing I want us to think about for just a few minutes. Because that's what happened at the end of the story, isn't it? It's one of the beautiful moments of this lovely story. That, that where did things begin to kind of get a little clearer for this man? It was when Jesus came back to him. And now I don't want you to think about my story. I don't even want you to think about your story. I simply want you to think about Jesus. Because if, if you want to understand in the most essential way, how do I begin to make sense of all that God is doing in, in my life? You meet with Jesus. That's not the total picture, but that's where it's got to start. You meet with Jesus. And there are times, unusual times, when Jesus comes to us in our pain and our suffering or in our needs or just walking along the road. But ordinarily, friends, we, we meet with Jesus by coming like we are this morning. Again and again and again. You meet with Jesus when in your home groups and, and you try to find a, a personal time when you can just be quiet in the presence of Jesus. But in a particular way, the Lord Jesus Christ is present when his people gather. I was saying to the group that gathered around that we'll be serving you communion in just a minute. Now sometimes we pray, Jesus, come and be with us as we gather for church. You don't need to pray that prayer. He's already said it's true. The very gathering of, God, of Jesus' followers is, in fact, we become what's called the body of Christ. The very presence of Jesus is here. And week after week after week, we come to meet with Jesus. And life begins to get sorted out. It begins to make sense. And in particular, this wonderful meal that is set before us now. What a gift Jesus has given us. He left it, didn't he? As he ascended to the Father, he said, before I go... I've got something very important to give you. And it was this communion meal. Now again, the presence of Jesus is not on this table. It's not in the bread. It's not in the wine. It's, it, he's just here. But in a very unique way, we have the privilege now to actually meet with Jesus in this communion meal. And as you, by faith, come in the quietness of your heart and in humility... To say, Jesus, here I am again. However long you've been walking with Jesus, whether it's been three days or three years or 30 years, you need Jesus just as much today as you did at the very beginning, right? And that's really what you're testifying to when you come to the communion. So I invite you this morning, if you are in fact one who has confessed to be a follower of Jesus, and that's what the communion meal is for. It's for, it's, for the, it's for the disciples of Jesus. If you're a guest this morning and uh, you're part of another congregation, you've confessed your faith in Jesus, been baptized, you're welcome. We're glad you're here. If you've yet to come to that point of closure with Jesus, God's got you on the path, I trust, but you're not that you're, you, you can just remain seated. Nobody's going to worry about it. For, you may have other reasons that you 
just say, this is not the time for me to take communion. But let me extend on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ a, a wide-open welcome to say, come and eat, come and drink. This is my body which is given for you. This is my blood shed for you. And may God grant that we will, in these next few minutes, meet in our own spirits with Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray.